Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by Verena Danielle and Wajiha Kamal. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. But first, some local crime updates. East Lansing Police Department reported seven fires following the victory against Michigan um, University of Michigan's basketball team. So on Sunday, last Sunday, Michigan State made a 70 to 64 victory um, Sunday evening against Big Ten champions and number two, Michigan. So Spartan fans made their way to the streets of East Lansing, Cedar Village specifically, which is an apartment complex famous for burning couches and flipping cars previously in the past, which they don't do much anymore. So the scene is also reminiscent and very familiar from um, the couch burnings, car crashes, and injuries across East Lansing after MSU football beat Michigan. Um, and that was in late October. So according to Deputy Chief of Police, Steve Gonzalez of the ELPD, there were a total of seven reported small debris fires. Five of those were in the Cedar Village area and no arrests were made. So that is the huge crime update, local crime update, I suppose I have for this week. Um, today we'll begin part one of our multiple part series on the Michigan murders. Um, with this series, what me and Verena wanna do is illuminate the victims and their stories versus glamorizing a sick, wicked individual. So hence we'll be diving deep and taking our time given the nature of this case information, also being as accurate as we possibly can without leaving out any details. Um, also special thanks to the Eastern Echoes podcast from Eastern Michigan University. They also did a multiple part series on the Michigan murders previously as well. So credits to them for excellent, accurate information that we'll actually be using here um, along with our typical commentary, of course, but we hope you enjoy this. Um, disclaimer, this episode discusses sexual assault and depictions of violence and murder. So if you are any way affected by that, please take care of yourself. Um, so yeah, we can get started. So I'll also be doing this case sort of like in the order of revelations and how it went through chronologically, just because it'll make more sense that way. So on the first victim, on July 9th, 1967, Mary Flesser, a 19-year-old devout Catholic and Eastern Michigan University student disappeared. So she actually took an evening walk from her apartment near campus at the time of her disappearance. Flesser's neighbor, Greg Forner lived nearby and saw her being catcalled by a young man. This young man was trying to get Flesser into his car. His car was a blue gray Chevrolet car. Both times Mary shook her head no at him and refused to answer his attempts at conversation and she walked away. But Forner said her neighbor, he put his car in front of her while she was walking down the street essentially to block her. Um, eventually, Forner said he couldn't see Flesser anymore. She was out of sight, and that was the last time anyone ever saw her alive. Any thoughts so far, Verena? Um, I think that with everything going on right now, um, there, there are a lot of conversations about um, sexual harassment and how fatal it can be for women um, right now, and it's just so scary that you know, this happened to a college student in our state, and it really makes you think that, you know, this could really happen to anybody. You know, you expect and you demand that you're going to be safe on campus, you know, in your place of education, but sadly, this stuff happens way too often. Yeah, 100%. 
Um, her body was actually found a month later by two teenage boys on August 15th on an abandoned farm near La Forge and Geddes Roads. She'd been repeatedly stabbed in the chest and Flesser's clothes were piled nearby. So investigators theorized that she was sexually assaulted, but because of decomposition, this couldn't be proven. Police actually had to use dental records to identify her body. And they also said that she hadn't she had not been killed where her body was found. So she was killed somewhere else and her body was placed somewhere else. State police said the killer returned to the scene at least three times and moved her body. So first her body was lying on top of cans and bottles, then five feet away, um, and then it was placed five feet away. And then it was placed three more feet away into a farm field and out of the elder trees. And they also said the attacker had mutilated her further each time he moved her body. Flesser had been stabbed approximately 30 times by her attacker and her feet had been severed just above the ankle. She was also missing a forearm, a thumb and parts of her fingers and the severed limbs were never found. I think it's just absolutely wild that he chose to, the killer chose to return um, several times to manipulate the scene and, um, and mutilate her body. It, if that's not an indication of some serious issues, I don't know what is. Um, and the reoccurring theme in these cases that we've been covering um, where limbs are severed or body parts are taken is a trophy or something it's just disgusting yeah um a lot of the times i feel with more high profile um killer serial killer cases there's always this aspect of revisiting the body in his case i feel like obviously he mutilated her body further each time and i think a lot of the time there's a sexual element to that um from what i researched and seen um you know, she couldn't even get to rest, you know, after she passed away. She couldn't, she, he didn't let her rest, you know, and this is all him, none of her, uh, obviously. Um, she didn't even, you know, get to rest. And that's just so, I think it speaks a lot, you know, like she passed away and he didn't even have, you know, the compassion or sympathy. Well, obviously he had none to begin with, but she wasn't even allowed to rest, you know? And that's just yeah. horrific in so many ways. And it's disturbing and wow. Like there's not even words for that. Like how much can you like talk about that? Like, I think everyone can agree that's so incredibly horrifying. Agreed, I'm struggling to, to put together thoughts right now. Yeah, and unfortunately, like I've seen on social media, you know, serial killers by campuses, college campuses. I know, I feel like there was one in Florida. I may be wrong on that. And there was um, an incident at Virginia, I think, um, UVA, where, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like a similar case from my knowledge, but it was also like a serial predator, um, which is just like, it shouldn't, like it's a, like, oh, I don't even know. There, I think there's not much to be said about that. It's just, I think we all know what we think at that point. 
Two days after Mary's body was found and identified, an attendant at the funeral home that was holding her body said that a man came in and asked to take a picture of Mary. He said he was a family friend and he was also driving a blue-gray Chevrolet. When the attendant refused, the man said, quote, you mean you can't fix her up enough so I could just get one picture of her? Reportedly, the man was white with dark hair and he had no camera. Following this, the case went cold for a year until he struck again. Any thoughts on this? I think this is quite interesting. You know, the, I was disappointed, but not surprised, I guess you could say, that he revisited, excuse me, revisited her before the body was found, but I didn't expect it to get worse, and mm, so he visited her, he tried to visit her body again at the funeral home. That is the obsession, like the point that you brought up about like the obsession with her. Yeah, that's, wow. Yeah, and I think this speaks to like, you know, this is an extreme case, I think, obviously. But I think this speaks to like a humongous problem, you know, a societal issue <laughs> where, yeah, girls aren't taken seriously when they're harassed you know like you know previously we were talking about the neighbor you know and he said um that he never saw her um and I don't know if he did anything about it Mm -hmm. like he saw this girl being harassed you know and he didn't chime in like he didn't intervene when he could have absolutely you know he saw that he heard that and he, he literally said and I quote, he put his car in front of her while she's walking down the street and he didn't think to do anything. Like when, when are, when are people going to take it seriously? You bring up another very good point. Um, Again, we could talk about this all day, but this goes back to, you know, when you're seeing these things escalate and people are speaking up about it, believe them. Yeah. Like you, you, as a bystander, your responsibility is to make sure that that person is safe and even if you don't want to get caught in the crosshairs you at least have the responsibility to report it to the police yeah and I definitely understand the issue with like witnesses and bystanders being scared to speak up like that's a huge thing in itself I feel like that's also like justified in a lot of you know that can be justifiable but you know he saw this person like blocking her way like mm-hmm. if he's willing to speak up about it now and I believe this neighbor wrote a novel like, why didn't he intervene back then? Right. A lot of this could have been avoided, I think, if um, if somebody had stepped in way sooner. Yeah. Some, like, she, there were many opportunities for, you know, in general, for a lot of people to do something and obviously fear the bystander effect. But, you know, at the end of the day, that could have really yeah. helped the situation. Mm-hmm. And like you said, this is a very extreme case. But this is what makes, you know, everyday catcalling and um, and unsolicited comments so terrifying because you never know when you're um, when you're rejecting somebody's advances, what it's going to turn into, because this is a very real example of that. A hundred percent. You never know what's going to happen afterwards. And when people are seeing someone being catcalled and they don't do anything about it, um, but they know it's happening and they know they're able to speak on it later 
but they in that moment they know what's happening and they choose not to do anything it's just very scary like there's not another way to put it and it's so unfortunate that a lot of people aren't able to speak out um, a lot of bystanders witnesses aren't able to speak out and I can't speak to their circumstances or why but you know it's just something to think about you know when you see see something if you can do something do it you know helping someone is a reward of a lifetime when something like this happens or any sort of harassment or catcalling okay now moving on to the second victim on June 30th, 1968, 20-year-old EMU art student Joan Shell left her home on Emmett Street and walked a block over to a bus stop on Westenau Avenue. Sorry, I'm probably butchering that, but she was trying to hitch a ride from McKenney Hall, which served as the EMU student union at the time. And according to her roommate, Susan Kolb, Shell wanted to go to Ann Arbor to visit her boyfriend. So Kolb said she got into a red and black Pontiac Bonneville with three young men. It was driven by a 20-year-old man with dark hair. Susan reported seeing her roommate missing three hours after hearing nothing because she told her roommate to call her after she got to Ann Arbor. Shell was never seen alive again. Yeah, this is, um, obviously times were different then. I think people were a lot more trusting, but... Um, this is exactly why people are so cautious now about even getting into um, into cars uh, that are um, like into rides that are rented through like Uber and Lyft because you never know who's going to be driving that car, who's locking you in their vehicle, what they have on them, what they're going to do to you. Yeah, exactly. And these three young men were probably students from what, you know, is happening so far. They're on campus these three young men are students who probably thought they just wanted to help her and that's not her fault i like obviously that's not her fault you know she's just trusting you know they were going to help her but for these so one man is obviously the perpetrator in the um perpetrator against mary the last um girl who was found uh, killed um who passed away um and he's with two other people like who are these two people like yeah that's what I was excuse me that's what I was also wondering um because we know that there was um there's one killer in the first case and now there are multiple individuals in the picture so I'm very interested to figure out where this goes yeah and these these the two other men like I wonder did they know about his last crime I don't think he told them but were they, like, what did they plan on doing? You know, like, I feel like there was some sort of, like, premeditation, maybe, and, like, premeditation in the, in the moment, like, oh, my gosh, let's do this, let's do this, let's get this, let's have Shell, let's give Shell a ride, like, was there something planned in that moment? Mm -hmm. It's just, like, you can't, like, it's so scary to even ask for a ride anymore, and, um, yeah, and this was the late 60s, so hitchhikers were more of a prominent thing. Um, I think nowadays that's been replaced by like Uber or Lyft, so you don't really hitchhike. Um, and there's more security there. Um, but even then, you know, that's not, again, that's obviously like not true. Even though you think you have that added security, it's not guaranteed. And that's, that's why we have to be cautious. Like, 
Absolutely. You know, you can't, like, it's so unfortunate that she couldn't even trust, you know, three people on campus, so. Um, on July 5th, 1968, um, Shell's body was found off Earhart Road in Ann Arbor, in Ann Arbor by construction workers almost an exact year after Flesser's death. Um, in 1968, the neighborhood that's now standing there was just being built. So she had 25 stab wounds um, when she was found and her throat was slashed with her blue mini skirt tied around it. She was killed somewhere else and then dumped in what's now somebody's backyard, not unlike Flesser, the last woman. Um, however, in contrast to her, Shell's body was still partially intact. Um, so investigators learned she was um, sexually assaulted. Two eyewitnesses came forward two months later. They said they saw Shell on Emmett Street with a young man. He was identified as John Norman Collins. Collins was Shell's neighbor from across the street and an Eastern student as well. He denied involvement when the police questioned him and he said he was with his mother during Joan's disappearance. The police did not check Collins' alibi. Yeah, again, this is, um, this is a little bit frustrating because um, if you're responsible for investigating this, um, this person is taking people's lives and raping them. Um, you have to, for the safety of your community, you have to at least check into um, a, a suspicious person's alibi. You can't just take their word for it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like... Um, also, the police knew there was, you know, like, dangerous, like, they knew about the past murders, essentially, like, they were investigating it. Um, by this point, they didn't close the last cases from not my knowledge, um, the last case by my knowledge, but um, they knew that there could be someone dangerous out there, and they didn't think to check his alibi. Um, I think this just goes into the another one of you know many issues um, about like you know women's safety on college campuses. Um, he was an Eastern student, and he lived across the street from her, and that's just like speaks to the point we were talking about earlier. Like mm -hmm. you can't even trust like a fellow student. Yeah, and I think that that is just so, all of these cases are um, are really hitting home for us because we are both um, female college students. And um, this year obviously hasn't been a normal year, but thinking about being on campus eventually and, um, and having to be wary of things like this is very, um, it's very, intimidating yeah for sure. exactly like this happened in the late 60s we're still dealing with that same sentiment of like safety and security and um feeling unsafe even on campus somewhere where you should feel safe um but we still don't like that's something that's been ongoing since way before for many centuries um and this, and it hasn't like that same exact sentiment still rings today. And I think that's how most women um, feel when they're on, when they're anywhere, when they're walking down the street, when they're walk, taking a walk late at night or um, walking in the city or walking on a college campus, like that, that sense of like 
you have to be safe. You have to have pepper spray still like around. Like it's never disappeared. Um, and the police really didn't do anything to aid that situation. Nothing at all. Yeah. And like you said, we are, um, we're pressured to protect ourselves. We're told, you know, not to wear certain things, to carry pepper spray, not to walk around late at night. But I don't think that it should be our our responsibility to make sure that people aren't attacking us. It should be society telling people not to, um, not to feel entitled to other people's bodies and lives. Exactly. So today, guys, we're leaving you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, I suppose. Not necessarily, but then again, we wanted to be really detailed with how we went about this and really cautious um, and, you know, accurate. So we'll pick this up next time. Thank you for joining us for the first episode in our mini-series on the Michigan murders. Stay tuned for another episode next week. If you have any Michigan true crime stories you'd like to see featured on a future episode, contact myself, Verena, at Daniel on Twitter or verena.daniel at statenews.com and at Kamala Jiha on Twitter or wajiha.kamala at statenews.com.